This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates. Our aim is to help you on your investing journey, breaking down the barriers from beginning to dividend. Whether you're an absolute beginner or Warren Buffett, we guarantee Equity Mates will have something for you. My name is Bryce. And as always, I'm joined by my equity mate, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. Um, Financial advice is something we uh, haven't really touched on that much. We haven't had too many advisors on the show. And we're kicking off 2021 with uh, not just one of the best, but according to Barron's, the best financial advisor in the game. (laughs) It is our pleasure to welcome Charlie Viola to the studio. Welcome, Charlie. G'day, boys. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I've, uh, I think I've listened to virtually all of your content, so I'm actually a bit excited to be here. Yes. So. Great. And you're the number one financial advisor in Australia in 2018, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, geez, Equimates must be doing something, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think we were a key part of you getting that award. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. No, I'm a... Um, I'm a bit of a, a geek for knowledge, I think, and uh, really like to kind of listen to and, and read as much stuff as I can. So whenever I find this type of stuff, I always kind of tune in and, uh, you know, scream at the car radio when I think it's dumb what you're saying. <laughs> no uh, screaming in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, you guys are doing a cracking job. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really well done. You make it accessible, so that's great. Thank you. So for those of you who haven't heard uh, of Charlie before, Charlie is a partner at uh, – Pitcher Partners, providing financial advisory and wealth services to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Specializing in ongoing investment management and administrative services, Charlie is personally responsible for over $1.5 billion. So pretty phenomenal. Uh, Charlie has been recognized, as we said, by Barron's as the number one advisor in Australia in 2018 and uh, in 2019, the number four. So Pretty phenomenal 1.5B under management. Must be pretty scary. Uh... (laughs) No, we hardly ever think about it, to be honest. It's one of those, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of deal with uh, the, the client that's in front of you. It's only kind of when you add it up to make yourself feel good, I think, that you uh, that you kind yeah. of look at those big numbers. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, It is a very impressive number and we'll get to that. But before we do, we like to start with a game. If you've heard our uh, show before, we won't explain it. It's overrated or underrated. Uh, and we'll start with the, uh, Australian, the major Australian index, the ASX 200. 
Uh, overrated or underrated? Uh, I'm going to say underrated. I, I think over the last little while, it's kind of been uncool just to invest in the ASX 200. I think everyone's kind of wanted to do this really kind of out there cool stuff. But what people tend to forget is that, you know, investing in equities is really about driving income about putting your money in places where you know exactly how those companies work you know what the key competitive advantages are you know you know what the continuity of earnings are so and the asx 200 is a fantastic place to get that so um you know especially if what you're looking for is good long-term hold investments that produce a revenue stream and, and keep your capital um re, you know reasonably safe and you want good returns over time the asx 200 is still a fantastic place to invest it's interesting because I yeah I agree with the sentiment that it's uncool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that all you agree with? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, everything else that Charlie said, but obviously the uncool bit. Let's move overseas then. Overrated or underrated? The Nasdaq 100. Uh, so I would say that it's kind of equally rated in that everyone thinks it's cool to invest there because you know it's got all those mega cap tech companies um, in it. But, you know, I'm still a big believer, especially in big US tech. So I, I'm still an investor there. And, you know, we certainly put a reasonable allocation of client monies uh, into those types of areas. Um, so I wouldn't say it's underrated because everybody wants to invest there. Mm. Um, but I'm not going to say it's overrated because I still want people to be investing there because it's the right thing to do with your money. Mm-hmm. The NASDAQ 100 is definitely the the cool kid on the playground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so we're recording this interview on Tuesday, the 2nd of February. Uh, that's important context for the next stock I'm going to ask you about because so much is happening day to day that we could be very outdated by the time we release this. Uh, but overrated or underrated, GameStop. <laughs> Um, let's go with massively overrated. We, were, <laughs> we, we certainly wouldn't be investing in GameStop, but um, it was a cool story, though, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it was kind of one of those. It was a. It was a bit. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds, really, wasn't it? You know, in terms of uh, what happened there, and you know, it was kind of one for the uh, one for the little guys in terms of um, buying it up and burying the hedge fund manager. We certain we certainly not speculative investors, and we certainly wouldn't be buying something into kind of roaring momentum like that. Um, you know, just to be kind of part of the the, the flavour of what's going on. So, yeah, not for us. Just because we're, we probably won't touch on GameStop again, uh, I would like to ask, if your client, you know, one of your ultra high net worth clients calls up and is like, I'm seeing what's happening with GameStop, I want in, what, what's your response? Don't do it to start <laughs> with because, um, you know, what goes up must come down in terms of obviously that type of thing. Um, if they become super insistent, then we have to do it because okay. we're just yeah. custodians of their money. So uh, at the end of the day, we give advice, but, you know, they have to say yes or no and then they've got it's still their money. Um, uh, but we will absolute counsel against it. You know, we're long-term investors of good quality assets over a long period of time, um, you know, and, you know, GameStop is an example because it happened in two days, but buy now, pay later is a, you know, is an example of something that's happening over a longer period of time where are the earnings in the buy now, pay later um, space that they're not there yet. So we don't really want to be investing there. Um, so, you know, we'll counsel against it. But if they want to do it, then, hey, it's your money. Well, you've, you've just lost Bryce talking bad about the buy yeah. now, pay later sector. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nah, I'm over it. Um, <laughs> uh Overrated or underrated, the Australian property market? Uh, I think you've got to kind of put Australian property in, in two buckets. I think you kind of got to put aside the family home piece. Yeah. Um, we really don't see the family home as investing. So as long as you kind of put all of that lifestyle stuff 
aside, uh, you know, we're still advocates of diversity. We're still advocates of buying good quality assets. Uh, and every asset class has got good quality assets. So um, as long as you're you're treating property like an investment, so you're working your way through the investment thesis, then we're still buyers and we're still happy to, you know, we still think it's fundamentally underrated. We still think there's earnings there. Um, but, you know, for us, if you're buying residential property, uh, then you need to be thinking about it in investment terms. Um, if you're buying commercial property, then you need to be thinking about, you know, the supply-demand dynamic. You need to be thinking about where the earnings are coming from. You need to think about, you know, how liquid that's going to be if you need your money back over time. So um, short answer is um, is underrated, uh, but beware of the various different sectors that exist there. Now, final question on this uh, overrated or underrated game. Uh, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Oh, I'm going to say underrated. Yes. And, I, and, wow. I would, and, and I would say that if you had asked me that question no more than like five months ago, I would have told you that it was overrated, that it was a game for kids, that it was somewhere for crooks to launder their money. Um, but now when I think about it and I kind of put an intellectual hat on and I think about what currency actually is and what currencies had to be over time you know there are four or five fundamentals about currency right the durability divisibility um, ability for it to be passed between people hard to counterfeit um, and a genuine store of value and the reality is is bitcoin is all of those things uh, and you know it's lack of regula- regulation at this point is clearly an issue and it's something that's going to have to sort out um, but I think if we continue to ignore cryptocurrency and we continue to ignore it, it's at our own detriment. So uh, I'm starting to become a believer, if I'm honest. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask the follow up. Uh, do any of your do you recommend any of your clients put any of their assets into crypto? No. So, and the the answer that's no. We're still very traditional and vanilla in terms of the assets that we're buying. Uh, but I would say more and more clients are asking about it, and as a result, we are taking more and more allocation because they just specifically want to have some of it um, in there. And, you know, uh, I listened to the episode that you guys did on your first episode back where one of you predicted that it was going to go to 90,000 US dollars. Bryce, it was you. Um, And, you know, it it probably, you know, continues to compound the theme that uh, it's going to become a real store of value over time. So... Watch this space. Watch this space as yeah. well. So, uh, Charlie, we always love to get a bit of an idea about your background before we jump into the nuts and bolts of the interview. So, always we start with the first investment. What's the story? Can you remember it? Any major lessons? Uh, yeah, I can remember it and it's a bit of a boring one. Um, I started working for the CBA when I was 18 or, or 19. Um, I tried to go to university straight out of school and I think I failed on attendance within about four weeks. I just hated it. So I just wanted to get out and earn money. So I started working for the CBA in very junior role. Um, and as part of that, uh, on an annual basis, we were given the $1,000 uh, tax-free share plan. So you got $1,000 of uh, CBA shares. Uh, and they were issued, I think at the time, at like $10.80 or something back in you know 1990 six or 1997 when I uh, 
I started at CBA, uh, and I think I collected them for the first four years or so until I sold them and, and used it as a deposit of my first house at 22. So maybe I should have uh, taken more notice of them because, yeah, they were being issued at 10 and $11 back then. So. Yeah. <laughs> not bad. Although it's not bad to uh, get those shares and then put a down payment on a house at yeah. 22. Yeah, You, you can't right. complain about yeah. that. <laughs> So uh, from there, uh, what's what's been your journey uh, into financial advice and into being the number one advisor in Australia? Uh, yeah, so like I said, I, I started working at CBA when I was when I was quite young, straight out of school, uh, and in very junior roles. And uh, you know, I grew up in uh, out in Camden, which is you know sort of sixty k southwest of Sydney, and started working at the CBA in Picton, which was another fifteen k further out. Uh, and very junior role, so bank teller, customer service, uh, and it was hard work. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're not very good jobs. Like, you know, everyone thinks you're a moron and, you know, the only feedback you ever get is is complaints in reality when you're in those, when you're in those roles. Um, but I think from a reasonably early age, I was probably a reasonably good talker and probably reasonably good at sort of selling things. So those kind of uh, junior, you know, customer service roles turned into a junior advice role from a, a quite a young age. I think it was uh, 1998 or 1999, so sort of 20 years of age. Uh, and I remember that role, I'd sort of found my way into the city sort of by then. And the junior advice role was you couldn't advise people with more than $50,000. And the only thing you could advise to put them into was four pre-mixed CBA managed funds. So it probably wasn't exactly rocket science. Um, but, you know, it was about sort of teaching young people about uh, the benefits of saving and, and dollar cost averaging. And, and really the plan in those things was put $10,000 in and then put $1,000 a month in to create that dollar cost averaging. So it was kind of good lessons in terms of young people and investing. Uh, that junior role turned into a more senior role in about 2000. Um, and despite being reasonably young, uh, I think I started to go bald pretty young. And, um, <laughs> hey, you know, same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I think uh, I've always had this issue where I've looked older than what, what I am. So, um, you know, I think I got to 22 and, you know, I was Probably I looked about forty, so people kind of trusted me. Um, uh, so yeah, the, this, the junior role became a senior role, uh, and then really for the next three years, it was probably reasonably successful from a sales perspective um, in building up a client base and, and sort of building up a bit of a following in the the CBA community. Uh, in two thousand and three, it was made very clear to me by one of the bosses that I had at the time at CBA that you might be a really good advisor, but we are very much a distribution network for Colonial First State product, which was the CBA had just bought uh, Colonial First State and the State Bank uh, at the time. And I remember it dawning on me at the time that, um, you know, I think I want to be an advisor. You know, I, I really want to sit down with people and understand um, their needs and objectives and, and um, you know, I, I want to be helping them in the context of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, so... I then, from CBA, moved to the business that I'm in now. Uh, we were called More Stevens at the time. Um, and while I had no idea that we were doing this, um, and, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, I had no idea we are an early mover, but all the things that the industry is looking to be now, um, you know, fee-for-service, product agnostic, um, you know, uh, doing investments in the context of what the client's trying to achieve is all the things that we had created back then. 
Um, and, you know, again, we had no idea we were early movers. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I had this vision for the industry. I didn't. I just had a vision in terms of what I wanted to to do and create. And, yeah, kind of 18 years later and, you know, we're now sort of 2.7 bill of uh, assets under management, which is fairly amazing when quite literally the day I walked in, it was a desk and a phone book. And, you know, I will always pick up the phone when a cold caller rings me because I was doing that. I was literally ringing people out of the phone book. I was ringing accountants and stuff, asking them to send me work. Um, it was uh, it was a hard track. I'll give you the tip. That feels like one of the hardest sales calls to have to make. Uh, I'm a fi- new financial advisor. I don't have a track record, but trust me with your money. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so, and in reality, you never call it the end client. You sort of, uh, you know, I was calling sort of centers of influence, I suppose, trying to get um, people to send me their clients. Uh, and I was very fortunate that one guy who was a, he was in like an outsource um, guy who did redundancy planning for executives. Um, you know, he he took the call, he listened to me. He, he was quite a flamboyant sort of guy and, and we got on really well. And he, uh, he said to me, and he was from Melbourne, so it meant nothing to me, you know, in 2003 in Sydney. He said, you've got more front than Meyer. Meyer wasn't even in Sydney in 2003. I think we were David Jones back then. He sent me one client who then sent me another client and then it really, to be honest, it snowballed from there. So, um, you know, in terms of being you know, the best advisor. I mean, that that's like sometimes that stuff's rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. That means we maybe we filled out the survey better than others. <laughs> um, but in in reality, it's all about the client service piece. That The one thing that I will hold very dear to my heart is that um, we're very good at getting back to people. We're very honest with, with everybody. Um, you know, we're fee-for-service only. So, you know, we're never going to sell them something. Um, but uh, it, 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 it's all about getting to know the client best you can. And we've made a real point of that over time. I think for people who are new to the world of financial advice, it might just be worth defining what the term fee-for-service means and then what the other business models for advisors are. Yeah. Um, So there's probably only really a couple of ways as a financial advisor that you can get paid. Um, Fee-for-service is specifically where you uh, state to the client um, that uh, we're going to take a fee, whether it's from the assets that we're managing as a percentage or a fixed fee, um, but it's agnostic in terms of or it's irrelevant to the products that they're in or the, the investments that they've made. The other way is being paid by the product, so being paid a commission. So um, we don't take uh, trails or commission. Um, we purely get paid what the client's happy to pay us, um, which means that uh, the advice is always impartial. We're not allowed to say the word independent. It's a prescribed word under ASIC. So um, because you know we do run an insurance business and a, and a mortgage-breaking business and those businesses are commission-driven, um, so we're not allowed to say the word independent. But in terms of our investment management work, we are purely fee-for-service. So, Charlie, when we were researching for this interview, we saw that uh, you'd actually done a bit of property development with no prior experience pretty amazing are you able to share uh that story with us um yeah so uh a a lifelong friend of mine um we went to primary school and high school and been friends throughout life um he's a uh, he's a smash repairer out in uh, out in camden 
Um, and it, he probably quickly worked out uh, over time that uh, capital beats labor. Uh, so, the, you know, classic story. Um, so he, he probably realized at some point that um, waiting for people to kind of crush their cars into each other so that he could bang out the dents was never going to make him wealthy. What was going to make him wealthy was using that money to go and buy the factories that he ran his business from. Uh, so he did that. He bought a factory, was running his business from it. The block of dirt next to that uh, factory came up for sale and uh, almost in jest uh, Phil rings me and says oh why don't, why don't we buy the dirt and put up three factories and um, it can't be that hard can it um, and I said oh so and we literally had no idea what we were doing um, but with the help of uh, a local builder and a legal contact we uh, we we literally we we bought the dirt. Um, we had plans drawn up for a triplex, so three factories. And if you've ever seen these industrial units, they're just basically big concrete boxes with three offices above the the main floor. So um, you know it's not exactly feats of you know architectural design or anything. Um, uh, you know, we managed to sell one off the plan. We managed to rent one to Bridgestone for 10 years um, off the plan. Phil rents the other one now for uh, his business. Um, and it was probably a lesson for us in um, residential development. The The industrial development that was happening was a very small pocket within a big residential development. And what we probably learnt was is that if you go and put 10,000 houses somewhere, they need somewhere to have a job, mm. which meant that uh, what was coming to the area was a whole stack of commerce. So it kind of really worked. Uh, and that's why the prices and that's probably why the development did really well um, is because as they continue to have that resi development kind of go nuts where they're building, you know, 4,000 four-bedroom houses with two toilets, um, there weren't many industrial units. So those industrial units actually did really well as a result. Uh, capital values went up. Uh, we sold one off the plan, which means that we, we covered, a, you know, a bunch of the debt. We're now left with a whole stack of equity and we can kind of do, do it again. So, um, again, uh, capital beats labour every day of the week so yeah, nice. <laughs> i like that now charlie we want to uh turn to uh talking about financial advisors and getting some lessons for the equity mates team and then also talking about how you go about choosing fund managers but before we do that uh we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors so charlie um Many in the equity mates community are probably on the opposite end of the spectrum for the clients that you manage, you know, early in their investing career, not not yet ultra high net worth individuals, well on the way to becoming them though. <laughs> um, like you blokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think a, a common question is, when is the right time to engage a financial advisor or how much money do I need to, in, to engage a financial advisor? Um, what, what would you say to those questions? Yeah, and I do get asked that question a lot. Um, look, I think it goes in phases, um, I, you know, in terms of when you get advice and what type of advice you get. Uh, traditionally with financial planning, and when I was learning to become a financial planner, um, it was very much that you kind of, regardless of the age of the client, you kind of had to sit down and then, you know, the first question you had to be, what age do you want to be? What age do you want to retire? What level of income do you want in your retirement? And you're sitting down with a 25-year-old or a 27-year-old or a 30-year-old and you're asking that question. It's just dumb. So by the time you've kind of produced the modeling and got all the information, it's kind of out of date. So I, I think the best way to engage an advisor is to do it in phases. 
understand what you actually want over the next two to three years. So, and understand what your goals are for the next two to three years, and then go and engage someone specifically with those two or three years in mind. And, and what I mean by that is, so is if it's your goal, if you're 26 or 27 and you've now got a job and you're earning more than what you're spending, um, which is kind of a good place to start, um, and suddenly you now want to get into the property market, then go and engage someone in terms of what you actually need to do to get the loan to go and uh, invest in the property market. Understand what deposit you need. If you're no interest in property, but you want, you know, you're wanting to build up a portfolio of shares, managed funds, or liquid style, you know, uh, financial market style investments, then sit down with someone um, and work out what the savings plan actually looks like. Uh, you know, how much you can be putting in every month and what type of investments are important, um, you know, to, to kind of allow that that dollar cost averaging type o- over time. You know, sitting down and going through that whole kind of planning process, uh, in reality, won't benefit anybody. You know, the, you're going to talk about things like retirement um, that just won't, won't benefit you and, and you're not going to get any value. So um, from... My perspective, um, it's all about, like, nobody can tell you what you want over the next two or three years. Nobody can, you know, nobody's going to kind of make that really clear in your mind. So once you know what that is, go and seek that piece of advice. And it doesn't always have to be a financial advisor. Sometimes, um, you know, good people to talk to if you're looking to get into the property market are mortgage brokers because mortgage brokers will tell you what your deposit needs to be. And then you go, right, I've got a goal in mind. I need to I need to save myself 25 grand before I can, I need to save 50 grand before I can kind of get into it. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Although sometimes, um, you know, a lot of people in the community don't actually know what they want. They, they do want to be told like, you know, over the, the next three years, you've got X amount of surplus income. This is sort of what you should be doing with it. Um, they don't necessarily have a goal in mind, if that makes sense. So- yeah. So, so like in that scenario, um, you know, the, the idea is to sit down with an advisor and, and um, I'll make a comment in a moment about advice and where you can kind of get that advice um, and actually have the options put in front of you. Okay. You know, over the next three years, you've, you know, you've now got the job, um, you know, you're probably still living at home, you know, the, the magic plate, and the magic basket that mum or dad produces <laughs> is kind of still there. Um, you've got more income than, than what you're spending. Uh, you know, you, you're generating an extra thousand or 2000 or $3,000 a month. Um, you know, he, here are your options here. Here are the types of investments that make sense. Here is the process with which to do that. And in three years time, this is what it's going to look like. At that point in time, you can then pivot and make your decision. You don't have to make the decision right now. But creating discipline and creating a pathway of savings um, makes real sense um, because it creates that enforced, almost that enforced saving, uh, and it will give people some peace of mind that they're doing something because what you're tend to find is that the more you earn, you tend to float your lifestyle up. If you create discipline in your life, if you create discipline around actually physically making an investment, and when I say making an investment, actually making an investment, so buying something, buying something that'll change in value over time, as opposed to putting it in the the saver account, which just sits next to your main account that after you've had the big night, you go and draw the money back out anyway, kind of thing. So Busted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because once you, if you actually go and buy shares or commit it to a commit it to a managed fund, um, or put it in an investment portfolio, 
it will feel gone, if that makes sense. And that's actually a good thing because it creates that deprivation, which creates the savings pattern and the savings plan. And then after having done that for a year or two and you can see a pot of money, that's the point in time where you can pivot and make a decision. Am I buying a house? Am I comfortable doing what I'm doing? Um, you know, do I, you know, because between 27 and 31, life might change. You might, you know, meet the girl or the boy of your dreams. You might, you know, decide that you want to move overseas for a period of time. Um, nobody tries to make all these lifelong decisions at once. Just on the cash bit, how, how are you thinking about cash at the moment? Yeah, so so um, we see cash in reality as you know as a means of keeping some powder dry to to be able to purchase um, uh, other assets when opportunities exist. We kind of see it as liquidity for people who are um, you know living off the the revenue source. But in reality, we're big ones for in, investing. Um, so you know, I guess I have a. I've got a contrary view to most in terms of how we view risk. I, I don't ever view risk from a normal traditional risk profiling sense. You know, traditional risk profiling would suggest that every client has to have 25% cash, you know, 15% fixed interest, uh, and then 60% in kind of growth assets. Um, that's just dumb. That just means you've got 40% of your money not generating reasonable returns. Um, in reality, the way that one should see risk is the risk of impairment, not the risk of volatility. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you've got a good quality, large cap, defensive, income-producing equities portfolio, the risk of impairment on that portfolio is actually pretty low. In reality, that's the low-risk part of your portfolio and it's generating income. Um, that portfolio is also reasonably liquid, so you can get back to it if you kind of need to. Um, but you know, cash really should only ever be there waiting for an opportunity to be invested. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever got rich adding a dollar to another dollar to it to another dollar. Mm-hmm. You know, use your balance sheet, people. Like, get out and actually invest the get out and invest the money. So, if we turn to uh, the other end of the spectrum, the the world that you play in, the world of high net wealth and ultra high net worth uh, individuals. Um, What's it like managing money for them? Um, are there any lessons that uh, you just spoke about for the beginner investor that don't apply when you're talking about the other end of the market? Uh, yeah. So, so how is it um, investing? Um, for me, the, the biggest thing or, or the most enjoyable piece is it's intellectually stimulating. So when you're dealing with uh, ultra high net wealth, and certainly my client base, which are mainly investment bankers and company CEOs, I, I don't have a lot of kind of uh, old money, I guess, or inherited money in my in my client portfolio. Um, it's intellectually stimulating because uh, you're always kept on your toes. You know, they're smart people. Um, but also, you know, if a client's got 10 or $15 million, there's only so many CBA and BHP shares you can kind of buy for them, right? Um, so, you know, in reality, they're looking for their capital to work a little harder. They're looking for uh, different types of investments. You know, they're looking for access to opportunities that maybe other people can't get. So I know personally, I probably spend, you know, 25 or 30% of my time just looking for alternate types of investments. Um private credit, private debt, uh, syndicated mortgages, syndicated property, private equity, um, so that we can provide the client, I guess, that alternate risk premium within their portfolio, um, but also make sure they've got genuine diversity and not kind of, 
you know, having all of their money susceptible to the same to the same risks and the same kind of volatility curve, you know, o- over a period of time. So, um, but also it just creates good discussion, you know. So, um, you know, th- there's lots of clients who know far more about financial markets than what I do. So, in some ways, it's it's about kind of counselling them and, and learning from them. Um, but it's also about um, creating kind of good discussion, like. You know, I'm of the view that the university of life is kind of the best way to learn and osmosis is kind of the best teacher. Um, So the more you kind of talk to smart people and the more you talk to successful people, the more you pick up over time. So, um, you know, there's that old saying that is, you know, if if I'm the dumbest bloke in the room, I'm in the right room kind of thing. So, (laughs) I'm just thinking about the network you must have uh, managing investment bankers and CEOs' money. Yeah, well, you'd love to get your phone and yeah, well, you're about you're about to ask me um, what's something that I've learnt from them. Mm. It's the power of network. That's absolutely it. So it's the power of network. So um, you'd be surprised how many of my client base just happen to know each other. Uh, you know, I said before about part of my job is to go and find those alternate investments or those different types or specific investments. Um, it seems to be nowadays once was an investment bank and now as a fund manager. So, you know, what tends to happen with these guys is they, you know, they work for one of the big investment banks, they get very wealthy, they get kind of burnt out from doing that, but they've got a whole bunch of their own money. Then they start running their own money in their own, you know, in their own kind of portfolios and then realize they're actually reasonably good at that. Um, So they create a fund and then they realize they need scale. So they kind of lean over the fence to the the guy who lives next door in Mossman. um, And they say, hey, I've created this fund. I've been running it for myself for two years. It's really good. Most of the money's in their mind. So if I blow it up, it's, you know, um, I'm not going to blow it up because it's my money. (laughs) Um, Why don't you invest? And then my client who's lived next door will bring it to me and says, hey, the guy next door, really successful. Can we have a look at this? Um, and the networks that these guys have got is just off the planet. You know, it's the, it's just fantastic. So, uh, and, and it's created that sort of network for me. Um, that piece around having my type of client base is, is all about clients referring clients. It's all about, you know, those kind of wealthy guys saying, oh, you know, my bloke doesn't seem to have two heads and he seems to be able to count, so you might as well go and see him kind of thing, so... Do you have any clients looking to invest in Australia's fastest growing media company? <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a bunch of angel investors who kind of really like this stuff, to be fair. So oh, nice. well, uh, we'll the, the answer to that, I, I know the question was in jest, but um, <laughs> the, the answer to that is uh, is probably yes. But you know, there'd be there'd be a bunch of VC guys who'd be all over this sort of stuff if they saw this awesome setup in this uh, <laughs> in this increasingly warm room. Yeah. They, <laughs> No doubt they'd be all over it. That's why we actually need to raise money to get some better air conditioning in here. (laughs) So um, obviously you've got a very um, sophisticated client base, but I'm sure there's plenty of mistakes that you see both um, from your high net worth clients and also just more generally across the landscape. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see and how can the Equimates community avoid making them? Yeah, so, um, you know, I probably said the word diversity about 
five times um, now in this um, – since we've been uh, recording here, I'm a big one for diversity. The, the probably one common mistake that you see with most high net wealth people um, is that heaps of their wealth tends to be tied up in one asset or one type of asset. Um, you know, Especially in CEO land, what you probably find is that a significant amount of uh, a CEO's wealth will be tied up in the stock of the company that he's the CEO or COO or CFO of. Um, you know, I, I'm a big one for diversity. I'm a big one for people holding different types of assets. I'm a, I'm a big one for um, making sure not all their eggs are in the are in the same basket. So, you know, my advice to every executive when they're you know participating in executive REM schemes is when the shares vest, sell them um, because you're only ever selling about 25% of your total exposure. Plus, you know your employment income is exposed to it, and your um, your uh, all your incentives are and. Um, so. Yeah, it's an interesting one because as investors and the experts we speak to, they often say you want to see CEOs with skin in the game and you want to see them holding their shares. Yeah. Um, but I guess your, your advice makes sense, but it is counter to that. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It, it's absolutely counter to that. Um, remembering though that we're asking them to sell about 25% of their total exposure because um, whatever they can sell, number one, they've got minimum holding requirements, which is generally significant. So for most CEOs, it's kind of two times generally. REM, which might be anywhere from sort of two to four to six mil kind of that they have to hold. Um, and then uh, about probably 60 to 75% of what they're holding is still invested. So uh, it's incentive that's to be paid based on the company's performance over a period of time. We're only ever telling them to sell that little sliver at the end that becomes available to them. So at least they can meet the tax liability and, you know, go and buy other investments or, you know, racehorses or race cars or whatever it is that they kind of, you know, uh, you know, want to do in the context of their kind of life. So um, I think the other, um, you know, the, the, the other, the other thing that you learn, I guess, from um, these types of clients is just to be really analytical. You know, most of these people kind of get to this point in life because they're really analytical. So, um, you know, the, the thing that I've probably learned over time is, is uh, just ask far more questions of kind of everything all of the time. Um, you know, so you will find that the best CEOs and CFOs and, um, you know, that the smartest people, they're smart because they ask questions. You know, they're not smart because they know all the answers. So, so Charlie, you mentioned, uh, you know, you sit down with your clients for, and ask them their goals, understand what they sort of want to achieve over the next number of years. Um you look at their risk appetite. Are there any other things that you take into consideration when constructing a portfolio? Um, yeah, so I think um, I think every client is subtly different. So, so the asset allocation and the types of assets that we might buy will be very specific to um, what the client's actually trying to achieve. So, um, if they're still accumulating wealth, if they're still working, um, then you know liquidity is not as much an issue. You know duration risk is clearly not as much of an issue. Um, you know we can we can perhaps hold assets that are a bit more um, illiquid um, for clients that are self-funded retirees and and living off the the revenue that the portfolio is generating. Then liquidity is a bigger issue. So you know a self-funded retiree will hold a bigger swag of large cap, defensive, you know vanilla style equities within their portfolio. Um, than what maybe somebody who's still earning a couple of million dollars a year and doesn't need the the, the income pr- production. You know, they may well be more heavily invested in you know 
syndicated property or syndicated debt or um, some of those more alternate style uh, assets over time. Um, you know, again, diversity is key, but it's really just a tweaking of those things at the edges, uh, making sure that the portfolio production or the that the portfolio uh, creation over time um, is in the absolute context of what they're trying to achieve. We really only ever ask our clients, and, and again, we're sort of seeing bigger clients, two main questions, and that is um, what level of passive income do you need to make work optional and at what age would you like to, for work to be optional? Because we never say retire because often people don't retire because they've often got enough money by the time they're 50 or 55 uh, or 60, but uh, retirement for them tends to mean, you know, getting bored and going mad, right? So they end up doing consulting work or whatever it is, but it's about the option to retire. And we very much design the portfolio around that revenue production because that's the big one. So every year when we report to them or every six months when we report to them, we're very clear about reporting what level of revenue has the portfolio been able to generate for you. And we make sure we're working that to what their goals are. Nice. So, Charlie, we will just take a short break to hear from our sponsors before we move to a conversation around fund managers. So, a key part of the financial advisor role that you play is to actually select fund managers to manage the money of your clients. Um, what are some of the criteria that you use when assessing these fund managers? Because it's, you know, all of our community equally have the opportunity to select fund managers as well. So it'd be good to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and there are thousands of them, right? There yeah. are so many. You know, I, I remember when I started in the, underperform as well. So. Yeah, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember when I first started. You know, there might have been you know fifty funds or thirty funds or whatever it is, and you look at it down, you can kind of you know it's like four pages of triple spread kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think there are some there are some normal ones in the kind of qual and quant process that you go through. You know, uh, key person risk, past performance. Um, you know, you, you take it for granted that all of the compliance stuff is kind of there. The really big one for me is making sure that, um, you know, what's on the label is actually in the bottle. So, uh, you know, we want our managers to be absolutely true to label. You know, if they say that they are a deep value manager, then be deep value. Don't go and buy the tech stocks just because they're running sort of thing. Um, if you, uh, you know, so if you say that you're a large cap industrials um, only manager, then, you know, don't buy BHP and Rio because, um, you know, we, we're going through a quiet commodities boom kind of thing. So um, we want them to be true to label because we're fitting them into portions of a portfolio. Um, for the equity mates community, though, there are lots of really good large cap defensive managers where you can be putting that $1,000 or $2,000 a month, um, or in reality, you can be kind of buying ETFs to do that anyway and gaining that type of that type of exposure. How do you think about that, um, I guess, choice between an index fund, with an ETF with lower fees or a large cap manager that may just be tracking the index but may be able to get some outperformance but has higher fees? Yeah, so for a long time now and one of the things that we decided to do when we first started out is, um, you know, we don't see a heap of value in large cap defensive fund managers, to be honest, um, because most of the time they do worry about their tracking error. They do just tend to track the index uh, and to, you know, to charge one or 2% to do that, we, you know, we don't think that that's feasible or commercial. So, um, you know, we're a big believer that 
uh, over time, um, you know, all, all boats rise in a, in a rising tide sort of thing. So if you want Australian shares uh, exposure, go and buy the ASX 200, you know, via a, via a cheap ETF and do it every month and, you know, get the benefit of that sort of dollar cost uh, averaging, you know, just keep putting the money in there and, and sort of putting it away. We believe you use fund managers who can do things you can't do and who have got the ability to produce outcomes that you can't produce. Um, so we use them for absolute value add uh, and very much fund managers in our portfolios uh, tend to be satellite to the core. So the core for us, so direct equities, we'll do it ourselves. International direct equities, most of it, we'll do it ourselves. Um, in terms of individual stocks and ETFs, uh, fund managers have to add value because we're paying them, you know, one or one and a half or, or two percent. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, a big question in the equity mates community is: is when do you sell? And I'm interested to ask this in the context of fund managers. Um, how often are you looking to change managers, um, especially if they've gone through a period of underperformance? How do you make sure you're not just chasing performance of other fund managers and chopping and changing? Because we use them, because we tend to only use them as satellite, we actually don't change managers that often. Um, but what I would say in answer to the question directly, if all you're doing is investing in a large cap industrials fund or a large cap Australian share fund um, with you know one of the big names, uh, I think over after a reasonably short period of time, be critical as to the outperformance versus the index um, when you consider the fees. And if there is no outperformance, if you're not getting any value for it, then it, it's time to cycle out and go and buy the, the ETF. And it's time to um, – so, you know, in terms of if you're buying a fund manager for that value add, then you need to give them time because, you know, they do need to be true to label. So um, – but after a, a – you know, after a two-year period, you need to be looking at it critically. Um, and, and we certainly are looking at that stuff critically. So when we do use a, a fund manager – for genuine value add, for exposure or diversity that we can't get, we look at it very critically against the marketplace that they're in. So, you know, uh, large hold infrastructure is hard to get access to as an Australian investor. Um, and there's only a certain number of, uh, you know, managers, um, but there are at least a couple of them. So we will look at those critically um, at least every kind of 24 months and make sure they are actually producing the outcomes that we're looking for. So, Charlie, before we move to the traditional final three, are there any superstar managers in Australia at the moment that you, I wouldn't say recommend, but are certainly uh, loving what they're doing at the moment? Uh, yeah, so none of this is advice, but um, uh, yeah, there, there are a couple. Um, so the the first fund or fund manager we really like is is Loftus Peak. Um, so they run the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund. Fund manager is a guy called Alex Pollock. Um, so you know it's a fund that's probably only got four or five years uh, history uh, investing in disruption style themes, which has probably been helped helped a little bit by the tech outcomes over time. But you know, not not constrained by size. It's only mega cap investments. Uh, they take this kind of really good sort of 15 or 20 or 30 year view of these companies, um, you know, and how they're going to benefit over time. You know, returns have been really good. Um, Alex himself, the, the fund manager, is a bit quirky. You won't mind me saying that, um, which is kind of good because you want your experts to be unequivocal, right? And he's absolutely that. So um, the other end of the spectrum, Aorus International, which is run by a guy called Stephen Arnold, who's the complete opposite to Alex. He's like a full-on accountant, um, you know, 
very analytical, uh, but he's deep value, which means that purely investing in the business, doesn't care what the share price says, doesn't care what the um, – you know, what the market's saying about the company, purely looking through the fundamentals uh, at the business and wanting to invest in good quality international businesses. Um, again, very true to label. Returns have been really good, even though tech markets have sort of gone mental. Um, in other marketplaces, uh, you know, in a, in a few of those kind of boutique spaces, and we spend a fair bit of time looking in that sort of boutique space, um, you know, credit is a really difficult market to invest in and one that people don't tend to understand. So you've kind of got to be backing the jockey best you can, especially when you're investing specialist credit. So um, there's a there's a group of guys called Global Credit um, Global Credit Investments, Stephen Scher and, and Gavin Solsky, uh, who were former, I think they were former Deloitte, uh, uh, Deutsche Bank or something, um, you know, made a whole bunch of money, created their own fund. Uh, you know, they've just got, uh, you know, uh, they've just got a really good view on credit, how it works, protecting the client capital, generating returns. Um, then in the property space, um, you know, we're not a big believer in the listed REITs. We think they're just about investment banks, right? They're using balance sheet and they're kind of using um they're using shareholder capital to go and buy those assets and then trade in and out of them. So they're basically investment banks. We like um, we like funds that have actually got real assets in them. Um, so we like fund managers who are really kind of discerning about the assets that they're buying when they're buying, you know, doing the investment thesis. So there's a group here in Sydney called Kingsmead um, uh, Asset Management, which we which we really like. Um, uh, just because they're just, you know, they've done a really good job over a, over a long period of time in choosing the right assets. Um, you know, they tend to be single asset unit trusts, which means there's just one asset in it. So not only are you sort of backing the jockey, but you're backing the horse because you can see the asset, why they've bought it, um, you know, what demographics are kind of pushing the returns over a period of time. So the big one is, is when you are backing the jockey, when you are backing a fund manager to do a good job for you to, to kind of manage the money, um, then you need to make sure that you're really comfortable that they know their space really well. So the hardest work that you have to do is making sure that you're really comfortable with uh, with that. So, um, yeah, so they're probably uh, three or four that we really like. That was great. Uh, I think we got to crack that question out more often because um, we love hearing about you know managers that we haven't heard of before, and that's that's four none of which I'd heard of. Do, do so. yourself a favor and get Alex Pollock on. You'll yeah, you'll yeah be, we should. You'll be in stitches in his quirky as hell, and yeah, so. yeah, nice one. Well, Charlie, we're almost out of time, so we want to uh, say a massive thank you for uh, coming and joining us today. Um, hopefully, we can keep in touch. Um, if the Equity Mates community want to find out. Uh, more about yourself or Pitcher Partners, uh, where should they go? Uh, yep, so just our website and search for search for me. I think you can probably Google me and, and photos of me will, uh, will, will come up. Um, but our, our website, pitcherpartners.com.au, um, and, yeah, I think it's pretty easy these days to uh, to find people's um, details. Uh, you know, again, customer service and, and client service is a big thing for us. So if you contact us, we'll definitely be getting back to you, even if it's just to push you in the right direction. So, um, and, and like I said before, I'm a big one for getting invested. Like I'm a big one for starting that journey. Even if you feel like you're kind of two years prior to being able to make any major decisions in your life, um, you know, 
start the journey, start putting money away, right? Because uh, access to this stuff, um, you know, uh, you know, there, there are there are brokers out there now that will allow you to buy shares for virtually nothing. Go and buy uh, the index. Go and buy these ETFs and just start accumulating wealth. Yeah, yeah, I like that message. So uh, we'll rip through the final three. Uh, the first question is, do you have any must-read books? And these can be investing or otherwise. Yeah, I'm not, I actually must say I'm not a big one for reading investment books because usually I kind of go, that's rubbish and that's rubbish. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think I got three pages through Barefoot Investor and went, this is <laughs> – anyway. Yes. Um, so I, I – Shouldn't probably end up getting sued for saying something wrong there, but um, so no, I'm a big one for if I'm reading, I'm trying to escape. So uh, I'm actually a bit of a nerd. I'm a massive Jeffrey Archer fan. I think I've read every single word that the guy's written. So you know, a couple of his books like uh, As the Crow Flies and Cain and Abel and The Fourth Estate, which I think is my favourite one, which I think was loosely based on Rupert Murdoch uh, actually. So uh, you know. I'm a big one for escaping and trying to compartmentalise and, you know, so um, Jeffrey Archer, John Grisham, those types of things, to be honest. So I've just I've just probably lost all my credibility. No, there. no, no <laughs> not at all. Uh, now the second one, and we're trial, trialling a different question this year, so fingers crossed it goes well. Um, in 60 seconds, uh, can you tell us what the best company you've ever come across is? Uh, yeah, this is not advice. Um, so... It's hard and it's hard. Uh, I'd say Macquarie, to be honest. Um, Macquarie. So, um, you know, they're so well managed, uh, the great use of the balance sheet, great ability to kind of pivot when they kind of need to over time. Uh, you know, from the outside, they've got a fantastic culture in terms of that kind of high performance culture. Uh, you know, and everyone who I ever meet there has, you know, just loves the firm, just loves the joint. So, um, yeah, I'd say Macquarie. Wow, I'm actually really happy with how that question went. I just thought we'd get Apple, Amazon, Google over and over again. But so. I don't know those ones as well. I don't know those ones intimately, right? I know Macquarie intimately yeah, because, you know, yeah. in dealing with it and dealing with people who work there. And, you know, if you look at the quality of the management in that joint, they could run any company in the world. So. Yeah. yeah, they are a phenomenal business. All right, and our final question. Um, when you think back to your earlier days, you know, starting at the Commonwealth Bank, getting that $1,000 a year uh, of CBA shares, um, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, from an investment perspective? I think just, I, I from think, a life perspective. I, I, think, I think it would have been have more fun. I think I got old too quick. But um, <laughs> I think that the two probably big ones for me is is maybe go harder a bit earlier, to be honest, in terms of the investment, um, you know, using the personal balance sheet. I think, you know, when I was 22 and bought my first home and already had equity in it, I should have used it. I should have used that balance sheet uh, at the time. I think I was just so kind of, you know, it was drummed into me by my parents to, you know, you've got debt now, you've got to pay it off. Well, that's rubbish, right? Debt's been cheap my whole life. Like people go, oh, debt's so cheap now. It's been like, you know, I was 22, 20 years ago. So it's been cheap for the last 20 years. We should be using that balance sheet um, to go out and grow your wealth and use it because money makes money. And the other one is um, love learning for the purposes of learning. I remember when I was 20 or, or 22 or 23, I never wanted to learn anything ever again. I just wanted to kind of get out and earn money. Um, now at the kind of ripe old age of 42, um, I find learning fascinating and I wish I'd kind of taken some of the insights back then. 
Uh, I've been really fortunate the last couple of years. I've um, uh, got across to the US and, and done some courses at Harvard Business School at MIT where you kind of get to sit in a room for a few weeks and geek out with a whole bunch of other people and just learn about you know how they see capital and how they see life and how they raise capital and how they value companies and um, and it's you know the, the learning from that perspective is just you know like it just makes me a better advisor it makes me a better human being and people should always take the opportunity to learn learn from others learn from people that have done it learn from people that have buggered it up you know like I said, uh, the University of Life and osmosis is, is absolutely the best way to, uh, to to learn and become good at things. So Nice, Charlie. Well, thank you very much. Left us a lot to think with and it's been uh, a great uh, refreshing insight uh, to talk to someone other than an investing expert specifically. So I know that uh, you would have helped answer a lot of questions from the Equity Mates community. So thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me. And just a reminder to our community that uh, Equitymates doesn't stop when you finish with this podcast. You can email us at uh, contact at equitymates.com or follow us on all the social channels um, or equally visit our website, equitymates.com. If you are stuck for podcast recommendations, though, don't forget about Get Started Investing, which is for all those beginner buffets and also the latest podcast, which is Comedian V Economist, which is absolutely booming. So head over and have a listen to that uh, as Thomas and Adam break down the world of macroeconomics. But we'll leave it there. It was an absolute pleasure. Keep in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 